Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Samira Gaderi is here. She is an immigration attorney in Washington, D.C. When she was in law school, she was a co-director of the American University's International Refugee Assistance Project chapter where she assisted Iraqi, Syrian, and Afghani refugees with resettlement in the United States. But I wanted to have her on the show because she's been an active supporter of the protest movement in Iran, where she was born. And that is a situation that has been going on for months. There's been this protest across that country against the regime, the theocratic regime, which is, you know, awful. Uh, And nobody seems to be giving it that much coverage here in the States. So, I was curious about what was happening, what the ins and outs were, where we might see it headed, the movement. Been a little bit in the news because the son of the ex-king, I guess, went to Israel and is trying to get it, you know, more international attention. That's, she has thoughts about that that too. Um, But, you know, for the most part, it just hasn't landed in the U.S. in terms of of, uh, front page news. So I wanted to uh, dedicate an episode to what's happening in Iran again this is a country that since 1979 has been pretty much, you know, public enemy number one of the United States, at least in the, the the sort of the discourse, you know, during the Reagan years, I remember all the talk of the Ayatollah Khomeini and, you know, what's the deal? This is a country that is is enormous. It has resources. It has an amazing history that goes back for, you know, millennia. And right now is turning out like really great art, really great movies, stuff like that, which usually you don't see in these super autocratic regime. So is is the country on the verge of toppling this horrible regime? 
I wanted to have Samira on and, and kind of uh, get to the bottom of what's happening. So excellent conversation with her. A couple notes going in. Um, if you don't know the, the deal with what happened there, yeah, this is appropriate. That is my cat making noises now because this is one of the things that I wanted to cover, which is that uh, <laughs> Samira has a dog. You can kind of hear moving around a little bit during the <laughs> during the interview. There was a moment when it was <laughs> the dog was ringing a bell to be let out, which I, I edited that out of the podcast, but you might still be able to hear traces of the bell. So if you hear something going on in the background, it's her dog, who is very excited, I think, and also very much uh, in favor of these protests. Um, the other thing is that even if you go on Wikipedia or read about it, the protests began with the death in police custody of a woman named Masa Amini. That's her official name. But Masa is actually, as Samira explains, a Persian name that they, the government sort of made her get. And her real name is Gina. Um, that's the name her parents gave her. It's a Kurdish name. And so during the interview, uh, when she says Gina, that's who she's talking about. Speaking of theocracy, I mean, this country is just, I don't even know what to say anymore about the Supreme Court. You know, these people, they look like the Ayatollahs, right? With their ridiculous robes, their ridiculous male presence, their complete inability to understand or protect women. It's just disgusting. And I mean, I, I knew that stuff was bad. I knew Clarence Thomas was bad. You know, it's pretty obvious that he was bad in, in during his, his uh, confirmation hearing, right? Uh, we all knew the guy was bad. And the fact that he sat around and didn't say much, you know, for years while he was on the bench suggests maybe a lack of uh, intellectual engagement with the material, shall we say. Um, and, you know, perhaps more unsuitability for the job. But my God, these revelations that have been popping out from ProPublica's reporting and reporting from the Washington Post and now other places is really, I mean, it's just damning. We have this this group of people, this subset, this majority on the court that are just fucking owned and do not have a shred of ethics in their body. And I, it just it boggles the mind. These are people that are going to decide, you know, things like the future of not just abortion rights, but the pill, which has been around for decades, perfectly safe. It's a fucking medical thing. And these creepy old men are going to take it away. It, it's repulsive, frankly. And, you know, the laws have to apply to them, too. Clarence Thomas didn't disclose all this stuff. You got to do that. And don't tell me you don't understand the law. Your fucking job is to understand the law. That's your job. Literally, it's your job. And where is Roberts? Where is this guy? I don't know how much power he actually has to enforce anything. I think probably very little. And I know there's shit going on with his wife's activities too, which, you know, I don't think John Roberts' wife was involved in the insurrection, you know, as intimately as Clarence Thomas's wife. But there's still maybe conflicts of interest going on. And it's just silence. I remember watching the confirmation hearings for John Roberts. I remember where I was and thinking to myself, this is the other political party. I get that. But this guy's really smart. He really knows his stuff. You know, I think he's definitely worthy of being on the bench. And he's just fucking failed, man. Between Citizens United, which is, you know, responsible for all this dark money stuff, and the, the impeachment thing, which he could have, like, thrown his weight around and saved us a little bit. And he did fucking fuck all during that. He treated it like it was like one of those doctor's visits that you have to go to to get your medication. You know, he just wasn't in it at all. It's like, this is one of the most important things in the history of this fucking country. What are you doing? And now 
you know, the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, he just tossed all of that away, all of those ethics things. And I get that there's no laws to prove it, the ethics. Of the, 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 the. It doesn't matter to a degree. Like some of this stuff has to be enforced or made public. It's just this omerta of the courts. Everything is underneath the fucking robe. And when the behavior is that bad, it shouldn't be. These people are supposed to be above reproach, you know, and they're not. They're just not. And probably nothing's going to happen. I don't know what can happen. Clarence Thomas, maybe he broke the law. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. It looks like maybe he did. And if he did, they should fucking arrest him. You know, just arrest him. And maybe this will like put a stop to it. Maybe. I don't know. But I doubt that will ever happen. I think we're stuck with all of these people. Which again, we have to get in there. We have to expand the court and we have to codify these voting rights. Because if we don't, we're on a slippery slope to fascism. And we're going to wind up like Iran, with a bunch of old men dictating how everybody in the country has to be. And, um, you know, as you can, you'll learn from listening to Samira talk, that's not what we want. It's really not what we want. And I know that there's, you know, there's so much to be outraged and horrified by, but this Supreme Court thing is just, I don't know, it's a five alarm fucking fire. And this is the moment. We have to hit it when these moments happen. When these stories break, we have to keep the pressure on or else they just wait for them to go away because they're there for life, right? Their whole MO is let's just wait this out. We'll be quiet. Something will happen. People will forget about it. And usually they're right. Usually that works. There's my cat again telling me to shut up. Again, okay, this is an episode of Cats and Dogs and... (laughs) Also, me and Samira talking about the situation in Iran. So uh, (laughs) I think that's my cue to stop ranting at the beginning of the show. So without further ado, we'll be right back with Samira Gaderi. Samira Gaderi, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, okay, I want to. I, I asked you on because you've been really outspoken about all the the, the protests in Iran, and I feel like the, the media in the United States is is not covering this in the way that it should. I feel like it's a story that's been mostly ignored, possibly because of what's going on here, what's going on in Ukraine, whatever the reason. 
it's a major, major uh, world event that seems to be happening um, and people just aren't talking about it. So I asked you to come on because I want you to um, just kind of share with everybody what's going on, who the players are, how it started. We'll talk a little bit about the history of Iran um, and, you know, the regime and the presidents and stuff like that. But before we go there, um, tell us a little bit about you. Now, you're you're an immigration attorney. You're based in D.C. How did you uh, start to get interested in this particular story and why are you so outspoken about it? Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I've i always been really interested in politics. I studied politics for undergrad. I did my master's in international affairs, and it's always been about the Middle East. As an ethnic Kurd, I just find the region very fascinating and also the different actors, the different key players. So for a lot of people, this revolution, this um, chaos in Iran that's been happening for six months has been really the reality for myself and a lot of the 10, 12 million Kurdish population in Iran for the past 43 years, and even so before that under the monarchy. So it wasn't really something new for me, but given that it did get a lot more attention this time around, I think that's why it just appears that way, perhaps. Okay, Um, good. So just as a, uh, you know, for people listening, I'm sure people know this, and I'm going to be remedial in a lot of these things, certainly for uh, remedial in terms of what you know. Hardliners established an Islamic theocracy um, in Iran in 1979, and Americans know all about this because the same hostage crisis gave us Ronald Reagan, uh, who you know sort of set the stage for the the, the current Christo-fascist ascendancy that we're experiencing in this country. So, um, uh, lots of things came out of that. Uh, of the 1979 uh, revolution there. I was like seven, I think, when it happened. So um, in my you know, child's memory, I remember it happening. And Ayatollah Khomeini was sort of viewed in the press and everywhere as just sort of this embodiment of all that is evil. And that was a long time ago. Since then, obviously, there's been other leaders that have come along. I want to start with just, just kind of a brief foray into that. Talk a little bit about the people who have led Iran in the last like 10 years, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to butcher the names, Aminajad Rouhani and the new guy, Raisi, who seems to have pushed things back into more of a hardline way. Um, talk a little bit about just, you know, the politics of there so people know. The politics of it is it doesn't matter what president is currently ruling Iran because they're all under the supreme leader's direction anyways. They're technically like puppets for the supreme leader Khamenei. So it doesn't like for me, it never mattered. This was a reformist. This wasn't, et cetera, et cetera. With Raisi, things did get a lot worse just because he has he is a religious scholar, quote unquote. That's what he likes to call himself. So he's a lot more conservative. He's a lot more strict with the rules and regulations of the country, of how Islam should be portrayed, how Sharia law should work out. And he's actually one of the main reasons that the hijab, like the mortality police, became a lot stricter uh, under his rule and as soon as he took into office. So he's he's he is more of a hardline guy. Does ha- they're puppets pra- in practical terms? Like, does it matter, you know, at all that 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 he comes in? I mean, because it seems like he's relatively new and kind of the ramp up. Maybe it maybe it doesn't matter at all, but it seems like it's caused a little bit by his presence rather than his predecessor. Yeah, it's definitely within his presence. And Raisi has actually been involved with the Supreme Leader's uh, ordeal since like the 80s. He was actually a key player during the 1988 massacre. So he's been involved. And it's like he was just waiting for this opportunity. He has a lot of loyalty to Khamenei. 
Okay. So that's a huge factor too, because it's like he's trying to prove himself to his long lost father of some sort of figure. Okay. So let's talk about the protest. The protest began with the death of Masa Amini uh, in police custody. Her crime was to wear her hijab, quote, improperly. So I guess, the, which is ridiculous. Anybody in the United States who reads this thinks, what bullshit is this? Um, it's police brutality which I think people here in the States can can appreciate. This is, you know, a bunch of male, probably police officers. Um, it's violence against women, certainly. Um, it's insanely disproportionate to whatever the, the crime is that she could, whatever, you know, strands of hair that we're showing or whatever the, he- whatever the heck she actually did. Um, right. So uh, why was this what ignited all the protests? I mean, why now? Because things like this have happened before, presumably. So why is this event the, the, the key one that just sort of sparked all this stuff? So I'm not aware of any other death that occurred under the mortality police, like before Gina was killed uh, in September of 2022. But with Gina, again, because Raisi, with, as a hardliner, he had a lot like stricter laws. He was talking about the Sharia law, bringing everything back. He even gave a mandate for the mortality police to take this more seriously than it was done in the past. That was a huge factor. Personally, I do believe that the fact that she was uh, ethnic Kurdish, that played a huge role in it too, because if you go through social media, if you go through anything prior to September 2022, there's a lot of females walking around Tehran with their hair showing, right? So to for the Kurdish community, for the Kurdish ethnic group, it wasn't about the hijab. It was the fact that they did stop her to ask about her um, hair showing, right? They take her ID. They see that she's from like a remote Kurdish village, thinking that nobody's going to be held accountable for what happens to her. Nobody's going to care. Right. Because yeah. she's just another ethnic Kurd that's going to get killed, just like it's happened so many times before. And under Raisi's new hardliner approach, they're using that to kind of send a message to others that are showing hair or that are not as conservative. So she was supposed to be used as an example, in my opinion. Yeah. What happened was they brutally beat her up. They did take her to this uh, station where they're supposed to teach you about like, you know, how to be a modest Muslim woman. And most of the time that girls are taken into custody, they are given a fine, which a lot of the wealthy um, residents of Tehran can afford, but most of the country can't. Or they're required to attend one of these courses where they're teaching them how to be a modest woman, right? So with Gina, they did, I mean, there's video footage of how brutally she was beaten up before she was in got like she was even put in the car then there was testimonies from other girls that were in the van with her that stated that they were beating her up while she was in there without her even resisting without her saying anything right and then she gets to the station and that's where she collapses and she uh they claim that you know it was because she had prior history medical history which is not true her family has denied it they're like go ahead and look through into her entire medical um history and you'll find nothing because she didn't have one but my, I mean, my opinion was that she was killed because she was Kurdish. There was nothing else to it. Again, just to please Raisi, just for Raisi to use this as an example to others in Iran to follow the hijab law, to, you know, cover their hair and not show any peace, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that makes it that makes sense to me. Your your analysis, like the, you know, it is a minority population. Um, you know, again, the 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 urban versus rural thing. So yeah, right. the cops probably figured, well, we can get away with this. We'll do whatever we want. And they were wrong. You know, they they uh to the credit of 
of everybody in that country protesting, I think, uh, you know, that that, that refused to, to, to stand by. And, you know, again, in, in the United States, I think people read these words and the names and they don't really understand what's happening. And this is, you know, fundamentally, it's like, an, you know, a minority, cops beating up and killing somebody in police custody. That's a minority group thinking, well, whatever, we, we can get away with it. It's, it's you know, right. um, the, you know, the same, if not exactly the same thing, it's certainly the same flavor. And um, yeah, I guess, you know, cops are are brutal everywhere you go. That's that, that that's one of the takeaways. Um, also, the co- I could just add one more thing. There sure. was another view. So a lot. Well, not a lot, but there were some people that basically said that Gina was killed because she actually resisted of the police officers she was trying to fight them back that does not excuse what happened to her just the same way that it happened with george floyd here yeah. they kept bringing up all these stuff about he had drugs on him he had uh cocaine in his system that doesn't justify what happened to him that doesn't justify the unlawful killing of the person of the individual whether even if she was resisting arrest she had a right to her hair was not any more revealing than any other girl in tehran on that day so that you know, argument was not very valid, but yeah, yeah, yes. no, that's a good, that's a good point. And this is another thing they use these, the, the bad cops, the, oh, well, you know, they had it coming and da, da, da. And it's, it, right. you know, it, it's good that people are, are, um, you know, pushing back on this. Um, so the protest began, it was September 16th of 2022. Um, and they're, they're, they're still going. So this is a long time now that this has been happening. Give us a little like a summary of you've obviously you've obviously been following this pretty carefully. Give us a little summary of like the ebb and flow. Like what are what are some key events or or, or moments uh, in, in the last couple of months um, that have pushed this one way or the other that, that people should know about? So initially, the protest started in Gina, Gina Amini's hometown. It's the Kurdish city of Saqqas. And then they spiraled out to the hospital where she was at in Tehran. And then from there, it just went across Iran worldwide, right? Not worldwide, sorry, countrywide it went. And it was so surreal for a lot of people inside of Iran, but also us in diaspora, because it was for the first time that we're seeing everyone united against the regime. So the chances of the regime actually toppling was very, very likely. Because Persians were united with the Turks, the Baluch, the Azeris, everybody from different religious, ethnic, et cetera, groups were all united to topple the regime. That lasted for like a few good months until, you know, there was a lot of self-appointed leaders that tried to hijack the movement for their own cause. There was a lot of erasing of the history of how this happened. The fact that Gina, Gina is her Kurdish name, right? Oh, okay. But it's just completely ignored. Yeah, I keep calling her Gina. So Gina, I mean, her family named her Gina, but the regime refused to register her birth until they gave her a Persian name. I mean, if that doesn't tell you how influential, how horrible, how corrupt the regime is, they're imposing what you can name your child. Imagine here in the U.S., you go to the county or actually you're in the hospital and you're like, well, I'm going to name my my son, Hitler. I mean, I don't know about Hitler, but whatever name you choose. And they're like, actually, no, we cannot register him until even if it's Hitler. Right. Like, let's just use a really whatever uh, example. Extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Extreme example. It still would not be OK. But who is the hospital or the county to reject it and say, we're not going to do it until you change his name to Bob or you know something more appropriate. So that name was hijacked for sure. Jinjian Azadi was hijacked to Zanzindi Azadi. And it's fine. I think it's beautiful. I, I love unity. I think it's a really, really great factor that all these humans gather together to protest for a Kurdish woman that was killed 
by the hands of the regime, but don't hijack it and run with it and then change the narrative to make it seem as if like, oh, no, Iranians have all been suffering under the regime for 40 something years. That's not true. If that was true, there's a 15, 20 million population in Tehran. Tehran, if Tehran's population were to come out to protest, the regime would be toppled within weeks. But that's not the case because the ethnic minority groups are the ones that have been suffering under the regime for 40 something years, economically deprived, educationally deprived. I mean, we have some of the smartest people in our region, but they're all illiterate because they cannot be taught at school. They don't they can't afford that luxury. There's 10 year olds, 11 year olds that are working on the mountains as coal bars, which is basically carrying like goods across their across mountains in the snow 10 11 year olds like they should be in school but because the regime has deprived them of any opportunity they're like the breadwinners for the family and so many have died under these conditions whether it's from like natural disasters or you know if there's like a avalanche that happens or regime is directly shooting at these kids that are trying to make a living to provide for their family so it's been something that like the ethnic minority groups in Iran, particularly the Kurds, have been dealing with for literally I mean, since the inception of the regime in 1979. This is interesting. Thank you for for providing that context, because I think it's it's super important. And again, this is a this is something that I think regimes, you know, these autocratic regimes do is try to divide the population up because they know that, you know, they, they themselves are in the minority. It's not a popular you know, thing. Right. I mean, uh, Iran is a fascinating country to me because unlike lots of places in the Middle East, which are, you know, the, the country borders were drawn up after the First World War by, you know, the French and the English didn't know fucking anything. And, uh, you know, Iraq is basically just has existed in that form since 1920 or something like that. Like there's no right. historical basis for some of the cities to go together. Iran is not like that. This is the, the this is the remains of the Persian Empire. It's one of the oldest you know, civilized places on earth. There's always been, you know, mighty governments there, uh, mighty, you know, real world beating kind of places. And as recently as, um, you know, this century, there there was very, very modern. Um, you know, you, you've seen pictures of uh, Iranian women in the 1970s looking like they could be in New York or Paris or whatever. And then this movement, this this theocracy comes in via revolution and 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 clamps down on things. That's easier to do in a society that doesn't have a rich history like this. So I I always think that Iran is going to come out of this. It's going to there's too much good art, there's too much good literature, there's too many smart people there, and there's too much history there for for this to last, you know, indefinitely. So um, what they can do is divide everybody, and it sounds like what you're saying is that's part of the strategy is to oh, no, this is a Kurdish thing, this is something else. Let's try to keep right. these these people separated because if they do come together, you know that that could be the end, um, you know, of the regime. And that's exactly what was happening. Everybody was so united. So we were very hopeful. But then as, you know, these self-appointed opposition leaders came about, things did slow down. And it's because why? Like the Kurds are taking, the Kurds are carrying the protests on their back, but they're receiving no recognition. That's not okay. It's 2023. Those days are way gone back in the day where Kurds would do everything. Kurds would be used to fight the other enemy, to do this, to do that. But at the end of the day, Kurds are left out when, you know, time comes to serve them the food, really, right? Yeah. That's one. The other thing is, yeah, prior to 1979, things looked modern. Things looked great. Women were walking around without veils. But you also have to keep in mind, they didn't have a choice then either. 
So it was veiling like her hijabs were banned. That's not okay either. A woman should have a choice. It's my decision if I'm going to wear a veil or if I'm not going to veil, wear a veil. So the fact that under the monarchy, women were forbidden from wearing it is also the result of why Khomeini, despite being this monster that everybody else knew him to be, was welcome to Iran, right? Because there was religious factors. There was religious people inside of Iran that did not want to be influenced by the West. I, as me, as a Muslim, if I'm if I want to wear a hijab, I'm going to wear a hijab. You cannot tell me not to do that, right? Yeah. So it's like even the monarchy. They post these a few, you know, pictures of like, oh, this is what Iran was. This, this is democracy. No, no, there was no democracy. Iran's never experienced a real democracy. And you would think after the collapse of the monarchy, where majority of them fled to the U.S. and it's my dog again. I was like, for the love of God, bro, he's so good all day, and then he just like freaks out. Um, sorry. He's trying to reinforce your point. That's what he's doing. I know. He's like, yes, you got this, mom. <laughs> so they, so the other thing was with the monarchy, there was a lot of things that were done wrong. Right. And there's a phenomenal photographer. He's Persian. Reza Degati. His book is just the, the title of the book is Reza Degati too. He was exiled under the monarchy because of, he took pictures showing the real life for real people in Iran under the monarchy, where the entire West and the entire world thought that we were just like living off of caviar and champagne. There was people starving on the streets, right? Millions, yeah. billions were spent spent on one event while there were people, children that were hungry. So I'm not a big fan of the monarchy. I'm sure you can tell. Now that when I keep talking about the fact that there was this unity at the beginning of the protest, but that kind of diminished, it, the main the main reason was because Reza Pahlavi, who's the son of the former Shah, he self-appointed himself as the leader of this movement, as a leader of this revolution. Mm. This is a lot of PTSD for ethnic minority groups that suffered aggressively under his father's rule. Nobody would be okay with it. When you simplify it to an individual person, I'm not going to be okay with my abuser, right? I'm not going to be okay with the abuser of my family. So when you put it in a bigger context of Iran, in what society would it be okay for me to go and align myself with the man? Like his family is responsible for the death of a lot of Kurdish youth, of a lot of our own Kurdish leadership, right? But he was killed. There was a lot of things that happened. And then now all of a sudden the Kurds are, we lost a lot of people in the past six months. There's 350 Kurdish children that were abducted from school. Families have no idea where they are. And you don't hear about it in the media because the regime has told them, say anything and we will kill your children. Like the killer, the children are being held hostage, basically. To teach the families a lesson and also to be like, don't talk to the media. Saman Yassin, Kurdish rapper that's been in jail since October. His family's not even allowed to provide any information about him, even though his charges were basically like he appealed his charges and the appeal court approved it. And he was supposed to be released after paying a bond. It's been months. We don't even know where he is. They transferred him to another prison where the family doesn't even have contact with him. I mean, for what? I mean, he, he it's not like he played an active role or he didn't. But again, it's just this Kurdish factor plays a huge role. I sympathize. I have so much respect for every single person that was killed by the regime in the past six months. I sympathize with the families. I've shed more tears than I can ever even imagine. But at the end of the day, it's just also acknowledging the fact that it's it's really been the reality on the ground for Kurds for 40 something years, right? 2005, this is just one example. 2005, there was a Kurdish guy named Shawan Kadri. He was arrested 
and then he was tortured. And then once he died from torture, like he was killed under torture, they tied his body to a pickup truck, the regime, tied his body to a pickup truck. And he, they drove him around the Kurdish city of Mahabad for hours. And then they took his body and they put his body in front of the mom and dad's house to make an example of him to other Kurdish activists like him, right? Yeah. This puts a fear of God in you. How could you even, I mean, I would be so scared. Anybody would. So it's kind of, it's always just been to like silence the Kurdish voice. The regime has always used this rhetoric of like separatist, separatist, separatist. There's no separatist thing going on with the Kurds. Just give us basic rights. Give me a water. Give me, let me learn, like, let me actually have access to schools. Let me have actual access to hospitals. Why do I have to travel to Persian populated cities to go see a doctor, right? Yeah, or, and have a name that's your that's your own name that isn't a Persian, you know, flavored name yeah. by it, dictated by the state. So, yeah, no, I didn't know that about the about the um, the son of the Shah coming into this. I mean, come on, that we no that that's like it's just yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's that one regime to the monarchy is not going to help any at all. I mean, you know, that that's what we need. There is some sort of democratic movement in the for the first time ever because of Iran's rich history, because of all the brilliant things that have come out of the country, but because it's just been under the worst leadership since its inception, Iran's just, I mean, a third world country, right? When you say Iran, people are just so scared, so frightened, but it's like the friendliest people, the most capable, the U.S., like, I don't know, I think it's like the largest immigrant population that has like the most successful individuals or citizens or something like that. It, there's a reason for all of that. But unfortunately, because of our leadership, we've always failed our own people inside of the country. Yeah. Do you think um, Russia invaded Ukraine, obviously, at you know, uh, six months or so before all this stuff started to happen? Do you think there's any correlation at all with Russia being militarily suddenly weak and people deciding that it's sort of more okay to rise up or do you think it's just coincidental no it's coincidental okay. russia's just with russia you just never know it's like they cause this huge fight but it's like any day they could turn around and be like you know what it's fine Putin decide that after he went on his little horse ride everything's going to be okay so let's just go back so i don't think his like um i don't think that really had a big influence on our on the movement i think it was something that was bound to happen and it did happen and it was great but unfortunately because of the diaspora and all the hijacking that took place and the fact that these iranians that were born and raised in the united states okay the most democratic country cannot apply the same concept to when it comes to iran it's just like they're in complete denial about different ethnic groups, different um, background, like religious groups. There's just so many different people in Iran. And it's like, just ignore everything and be like, we're all Persian. We're all great. And let us, you know, get rid of the regime, bring back Reza Pahlavi, let him be my king. And I'll just be a very, very, very loyal servant servant to him. I wouldn't. Don't don't post that. Wait, why am I not posting that? <laughs> the part about me being a loyal servant to Reza Pahlavi. Oh, I know you. I know you're being sarcastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I know you're not going to be a. Uh, you, you, your your anti monarchist views are pretty. You know, are pretty clear. And it's you know, I think in a country like that, that's a diverse country. It's a diverse population. If you're going to have you know a country that has lots of different kinds of people in it, there, there's only so many ways that you can go about doing that. That's fair. And you know, if you're going to have a de a democracy, that's the best way to do it because it's just everybody has the same rights, everybody has the same privileges. Uh, you know, people are elected to serve, and they serve everybody, yeah. and that's just sort of how it works. You know, the um, theocratic system and work. I mean, that's what Rome did ultimately to unite the Roman Empire. 
they were like, we're going to be Christians now. Yay. Okay. We're all Christians. So we can all kind of gather under that banner. And that's something that, that can unite all of us. And I think, you know, in, in Iran, they're trying to do it with, you know, with the King and there the Shah and now with the, uh, you know, Supreme leader there. Um, right. But that ultimately doesn't work. It doesn't produce anything. It just makes people miserable. And I mean, who wants to have a, who wants to live in a place where, you know, your job is to go around and like torture people and just drive a car around the neighborhood and terrorize everybody. And I know there are people that like to do that kind of thing, but it just seems awful to me. I mean, who, you know, how how can you sleep at night knowing that you went out and did something like that? Even if it's because the regime told you, who cares? It's just horrible. But that's the thing. It's like the regime told you to do it. Fine, go do it, whatever. I mean, you shouldn't do it, but let's just say, right. But it's like yeah. when people turn like civilians, individuals turn a blind eye to what happened. Oh, it was terrorist activities. I don't care what it was. That's inhumane. If you want democracy, if you want to implement democracy, if you want to live in a democratic society, you have to understand there's rule law, love, order, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So that's not okay. That's your decision. That's your understanding of who he was. But that's not who he was. Was there a jury? Was there uh, any type of hearing? Was there anything to kind of label him that? No. But yeah, it's so the person that does the act is horrible. The regime that sends him out to do that is a monster. Individuals yeah. that choose to turn a blind eye to this, they're just, can I say stupid? Yeah. You can say whatever you want. They're abetting it. They're, you know, it's like you're also, yeah, that's exactly it. You're aiding and abating what the regime is doing. Yeah. And honestly, it's like, yeah, this Gina revolution has been huge for us. This entire movement has been huge. But we also have to keep in mind the fact that this woman life freedom movement came about. I mean, it is a Kurdish slogan. It's been with the Kurds for a very long time. What is the slogan? Woman life freedom, Jinjian Azadi. Okay. So now it's Zanzindigi Azadi, which I'm sure you've seen everywhere because they like to shove it down our throat. Yeah. Which is fine, you know, but at least just give credit to where it came from, what it meant to us. It wasn't just about the hijab for us. It was it's about the fact that a society cannot even be freed until women are freed. Right? It's yeah. my choice, my body, whatever it is that I want to believe in. So that's a huge yeah. factor for us too. Um, I want to talk about that. Uh at more length, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Samira Gaderi. Okay, we're back with Samira Gaderi. Um, we were talking before the break about uh, the role of women, and this does seem to be this movement, at least from where I sit looking at it, it was you know, started by the death of a woman. It appears to be very much women, women driven. Um, are there uh, leaders in the movement now that we should know people we should know? I mean, what, what's your take on it? I personally think that the diaspora failed the people of Iran because of self-appointed leaders that were very quick to label themselves as the leaders of the movement without having any concrete step on how we're going to achieve democracy or how we're going to bring about change in Iran. It's very easy to say whatever I want to say, but how am I going to implement it? If there's no structure, if there's no order, there's just it's just not possible. And the other really big disadvantage about these self-appointed leadership was that for individuals that oppose their you know rule or that oppose uh, that oppose their kind of understanding, we we were the ones that were isolated. We were labeled separatists, same as the regime labels us as separatists. So what makes you any different? Just because I don't agree with your views, just because I don't agree with the way you're planning on ruling or 
you know, the rumors are that uh, Reza Pahlavi just wants us wants to get us to a free Iran. But once we're there, he's just going to, you know, get off the train and go live his life and let the people of Iran decide how we're going to rule the country. It's not, it's not, I mean, it's, that's bizarre. It's, I don't believe it. I don't think yeah. majority of my people, my people, majority of the people do not agree with his statements. I don't think he has a huge following, but social media pretends to make it seem as if he really does because, you know, according to life now, Twitter kind of decides who's going to be our leader. And that's the statistics that we're supposed to go off of. So if you reject that proposal, if you reject what Twitter statistics elections come up with, then you are a traitor to the movement, which has been dealt with harshly because there's people dying in Iran. There's still more than 15,000 people that are still in prison that are under torture. There's hundreds of people that are getting tortured as we speak. And yet in the diaspora, we can't get our act together because we're, you know, we're being fed a bunch of stuff that we're not going to believe. And if we don't accept it, if we speak up against it, then we are, yes, we are traitors to the movement. Makes no sense. Yeah. No, it's, this is, this is, revolutions are tricky. You know, the P it, it often happens historically where the, the people that are really leading the revolution, the most revolutionary people wind up not being the ones that are in charge after the, the dust settles. Um, it's people that pull, hold back a little bit and are slightly more moderate um, historically, like in France, that's what happened and, and you know, and elsewhere. Um, it's, just, it's interesting. And I hope that that it can push through. It's out. You, you sound like you're more uh, pessimistic about things than maybe you would you would have felt before. Is that accurate to say? Yes, absolutely. I was very hopeful at the beginning. You know, as the community, as part of the Kurdish community, we would attend a lot of the diaspora support protests uh, just so that the people back home kind of just are aware that we haven't forgotten about them, that we're standing with them, that we're doing our best from here. Um, Of course, it's like a lot of shortcomings, but still it was just we're not able to do much. So whatever we could do, we did it. But, you know, honestly, after a few months, especially recently, it's just there's there's been so much bickering and there's been so much fighting within diaspora. It's taking our attention off the goal. And now we're just I it feels like we're just fighting each other instead of what the initial plan was to topple the regime. And that kind of has taken like a backseat. Is that what they say? Backseat? Yep. A backseat. Yeah, that that's unfortunate. And it also it feels also like there's more sort of terroristic horrors that are coming out of there. Like there's these reports of like kids getting shot in the eyes and stuff like that. What What's that about? Is that just pure, like, let's try to think of the worst thing we can do to people to scare them? Or is there some greater symbolic significance there? No, you're absolutely right. That's what it is. It's just to the regime kept trying for months to kind of like bring down protests and to kind of quiet the people down, but it wasn't working. So they, this is what, this is what they resorted to another level of violence where they're shooting. So currently there is a 17 year old Kurdish kid. He was shot in both eyes. He's blind in his left eye. The right eye is like really severely injured. So him and his family flee Iran after he's been released from the hospital because they know that the 17-year-old kid's going to go to jail and he's probably going to end up being killed because he's a Kurdish youth that's active, right? Yeah. So the family basically flees Iran, takes a boat through the Mediterranean, right? The tragic stories that we hear from them too. And they're caught by the Greek police and then the family sent back to Turkey. And now they're in detention in a camp in Mula, Turkey, where they're at risk of being deported back to Iran. What? 17-year-old kid lost his eye by the regime, 
went through so much hardship to flee this type of violence, to flee what really the future was going to hold for him, just to be kept in a detention in Turkey. And then now he's going to get deported back. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Where is the international community, right? Grant him some type of visa, temporary visa to the U.S., to Canada, to one of the European countries. So A, he can get the medical assistance that he needs for his eye before the, that one goes blind too. And also just to give him some, some relief, some type of safety, some type of assurance. Like you stood up and you fought for democracy. It just didn't turn out to be in your favor. But here's what we can do for you now. We couldn't do anything for you while you were in Iran because we don't want to interfere with domestic politics, right? Yeah. Okay, fine. He's outside of Iran. So let's do something for him now. Let's find a way to get him a visa so at least he can get the surgery that he needs. Angelina Jolie actually like wrote about him yesterday, Zanya Tondori. And again, so it's like, yeah, they are shooting individuals. They're shooting. I mean, it's just, it's the most inhumane ways, right? It's like now when we read about history, about what happened in the past, we're like, how could that have happened? How could humans be so evil? But it's happening right now and we're not doing anything to stop it. We're yeah. just letting it happen, watching from the sidelines, which is really, really horrific because it just tells you moving forward, it's going to happen again and again and again because the international community cannot get it, get its own thoughts together to kind of be like, okay, we need to have a basic universal understanding of what democracy is and we need to apply it accordingly to every region. We can't just be like, like selective of like, okay, you get to be democratic, you not so much. We'll grant you visas, you not so much. And if I could just bring something, it's a bit controversial. So I'm an immigration attorney, obviously. Right. When the Ukrainian, uh, when the Russian-Ukraine war started, we as Americans were very, very generous towards the Ukrainian population that was coming to the U.S., right? right. We were granting visas left and right, et cetera, et cetera. Why can't we afford that same exact policy, that same exact doing to the Iranians that are stuck they're taking the Mediterranean Sea. They're stuck in Turkey where they face deportation. They're in Greece where they don't have money. They don't speak the language. There's just so much things that we could do, but we're just choosing not to. Like if we had the capacity to do it for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, why can't we do that now for the Iranians? Yeah, no, I agree. And it's not like, you know, it's not like the United States and the United Kingdom are completely blameless in terms of interfering with Iranian oh. domestic policies. <laughs> um, yeah. We, we, we author authored some some shit there um, in the 1950s that probably uh, made things a lot worse, ultimately. So, you know, yeah, the least we can do is is, uh, you know, give asylum to to people that need it, that are fighting for for democracy. I mean, I think it's true. I think we're, we're in a moment right now in general worldwide, um, including in the United States, including in Canada, wherever we're. You know, there are forces of, of autocracy, of fascist forces, as I like to say on this show, you know, that are gathering power and gathering strength. And I don't think most people in the country realize what what a threat this is, the movement, even in the United States and what kind of rights, you know, can be lost. You know, we see it here with the, the Dobbs decision and stuff like that. Um, things are obviously getting worse in the state houses. It's a it's a shit show. And it's a situation where rights are being taken away that we, anybody, I'm 50, anybody my age or younger has always had, you know, which is different than, you know, we didn't have the rights before and now we do. It's, you've always had the right to do this in your lifetime. Now, suddenly you don't. And uh, I think, you know, the, the Iranians can can sympathize with that because they, they also, there were certain rights that they had that now they don't and vice versa. And, uh, you know, I think that 
the, the the best way to achieve peace in in the world in general is to uh, foster democratic governments and democratic movements and do whatever we can to to help and support you know people trying to uh, establish and strengthen democratic traditions in these countries. I think it's it's super important. So that's my soapbox. <laughs> No, I love it. You're absolutely right. And even if, I mean, there's a lot of people that disagree with the asylum component. It doesn't even have to be something permanent. Let's just give them humanitarian parole until something happens in Iran where they are safe to go back, where they're safe to return. There's a lot of people that need medical assistance that are not getting it because of financial reasons, because the regime is threatening the doctors that are there to basically help and heal these injured protesters. But because they're protesters, they're not getting the aid that they need. So it's just, there's just a lot of other, sure, we're not asking you to go in there and fight the regime and kick him out and like, let us go and like live there. No, just, there's other things that we can do. Humanitarian pro visas, uh, providing assistance any way that we can for the ones that are injured. Well, I don't think, you know, people that are involved in these activist groups that are trying to bring democracy to Iran, they don't want to stay in the United States anyway. They want to go and live in a, in a democratic state in Iran. So, uh, you know, it's not the same thing as people, you know, leaving a country and they know they're never going back or whatever, just from a sheerly from a, a numbers standpoint. I know, you know, certainly there's a lot of people in the United States that don't want anybody new to come in ever. That's um, right. been that way in the United States since like the 17th century. <laughs> but, you know, that's just it's just part and parcel of, of, of our, uh, you know, the way that our people are for whatever reason. Um, so you mentioned before. How many people are in prison? Is it really 15,000 people in prison? I read there's almost 500 people dead during these protests and stuff like that. Are those numbers accurate? What are the, what are the numbers that you're hearing? The numbers are much higher. Uh, we have to keep in mind there was at least 20,000 people that were in prison since the protest started. That's just in six months, right? And we're talking about including children, not just like, oh, 18 and over. Mm -hmm. So the numbers could be much higher. 500 killed, it's definitely higher than that. There's a lot of people that are tortured to death in prison where the regime, of course, they're not going to submit, you know, a newsletter like, hey, God forbid, God, that's like not even something to joke about. But it's like, it's not a newsletter that they would publish, right? That would say, hey, yeah. well, this person died yesterday when we we're torturing him. There's a lot of families that cannot get in contact with their loved ones. So there's a lot of, I mean, for me, there it's like enforced disappearance. Yeah. The families cannot locate them. The families cannot get in contact with them. Miraculously, Christiana Amanpour was able to get in contact with Evan Prison, a uh, prisoner at Evan Prison, which made no sense because there's families across Iran that literally, I mean, they're like, we don't know where our kids are. 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds that have gone missing. So the numbers are much, much higher the numbers executed, I know everywhere it says like four, four. No, the numbers are much higher than that. It's just, you. I mean, you have to consider when you're killed under torture, that's execution. Just yeah. because they didn't take you outside and, you know, give you a time and like, okay, tomorrow at 4 a.m. during prayer, we're going to hang you. That's not any different from when they torture you, which is even worse way to die, right? Because you're enduring pain for hours and weeks and days before you're eventually killed. So the numbers are definitely, definitely higher. It's just the regime has a great way of, I mean, there's no access to Iran, right? Whether it's journalists, yeah. whether it's foreigners, et cetera. So we can't verify it. So if this is what the regime is telling us, just know that it's like double, triple the numbers. Okay. So the last question I have is uh, how can we help? You know, we want to uh, people that are interested in this, that, that are listening to it. Obviously the, you know, these protests are real. We try to share things when we see them. Um, what can we do to help? Are there organizations we can support? Like what, what can we do? 
I think it, there is a currently a MASA Act that's going on in Congress, which is basically to sanction President Raisi um, and hire senior leadership within the regime. Uh, there's also the European Union that, I mean, they should have designated IRGC as a terrorist group, but then the head of the EU said no, because they don't have enough evidence. What? Yeah. I mean, there's thousands of incidents. There's so much evidence of why IRGC should be designated as a terrorist group. So that made no sense. There's also um, just keep sharing whatever you see online. I know we're like a lot of my own friends, you know, my own colleagues are just like, okay, bro, like things are still not better in Iran. And I'm like, no, they're not. And I'm going to keep sharing and I'm going to keep talking about it. Even when nobody does, I'm still going to do it. I mean, I have been doing it for a long time already, but it's just like knowing that there's people dying. Like, and it's really, I don't know what it is, but I've, I've really been impacted by all of it, right? The last execution that we are actually, like we know about was Mehdi Karimi, who was 22 year old karate champion. They sl- like they killed him. Like, and I remember that night, the mom and dad and the brother went to the prison because they heard rumors that they were gonna execute him. And the guards were like, no, it's just rumors. Don't fall for the West propaganda. They're just trying to scare you. Go home, rest. Their family's like not knowing what to do. And then they execute while they're executing the 22 year old kid. Or that they also executed Said Mohammadi that same night with Karimi. And he was like a 35, 30, I don't, I don't even care how old he was. They executed him the same night. He had no family members. The best, like the prisoners wouldn't even release his body because no family was there to collect his body. These are horrific things. The entire generation, our generation, Z generation, X generation, 55 generation, I don't know what they're all called, but they're all going to grow up with all this trauma because we witnessed it. We saw it. We heard it. So it's like it's a lot of recovery for the entire population. But I think, yeah, it's just just share it. Just share as whatever it is that you see, unless it's to like promote the monarchy. Please don't share that. We don't. I mean, people that 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 are familiar with my work know how I feel about monarchies in general. Which is that, come on, guys, it's 2023. We're not gonna. We don't. We don't. That's what I said. I was like, people are calling for like the UK to abolish it, and now we're gonna go back to Iran. And what did it do for us? Yeah, it it did nothing. Not not for a very long time. Maybe under like Cyrus the Great, it was okay. You know, but that's about yeah, it. Yeah, maybe like, perhaps. Yeah, that was a long it's just time like, ago. It's like there was Savak. There was a lot of torture. There was a lot of wrong things. Like we can talk about the regime's wrongdoings, but we don't have to whitewash what happened under the Shah. I don't care if he wore a suit and a tie. That doesn't mean anything to me. You know, I don't care if he lived this lavish life and had caviar for breakfast. So what? People were dying on his watch. He was sending people out to torture people. No. Yeah. With all that money, all that influence that he had, he could have done great things, but he chose to go the other way. And yeah. he paid the, I mean, I don't want to say he paid the price for it because I don't believe in violence, but- Anyways, that's it. The karma got him. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So where can we find you? Well, you're on you're on Twitter, obviously. What's your Twitter handle? Samira underscore Gaderi. Okay. Should I spell that? You can. G-H-A-D-E-R-I. Did I spell that? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, people can go follow you and, you know, you, you do a great job putting out, you know, reports on this stuff. You're really plugged in with what's happening there. And I know it's got to be it's got to be frustrating to, you know, you just want results with this stuff. It's it's, uh, you know, just like, you know, I've been writing about 
Trump now for seven years somehow. And it's like, you just want results. You want people to be arrested. You want this and that. And it's very, very frustrating when nothing happens and long periods of time go by. But, you know, it's really, really important, I think, to just keep spreading the word. So I, I you know, uh, good on you for doing that. I know it's hard to do. And uh, and it would be very easy to, to stop and just tune it out um, emotionally and otherwise. Yeah. But I, I think you're doing a great, you know, great work by by not ignoring it and, and you know, taking part and participating in the fight against the, uh, you know, this fucking brutal regime. So, you know, good on you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having an interest in covering this. I know a lot of people are not very interested, but I'm really glad you have this keen interest in covering reality on the ground for Iranians, especially okay. well, the minority groups. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, hopefully at some point yeah, the, the, the regime will topple, then you can come back on the show and tell us how happy you are. That would be good. That would be good. Yeah. And we can actually go back to Iran together and do like an entire segment on it. That would be that awesome. Would be fun. Yeah. I, have you been to Iran? I was born there, actually. I was born there and we came to the States at like 95, 96. Okay. Okay. I've never been. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what year I was born, if that's what you're trying to like get at. I'm not, I, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know. Uh, no, but a lot of people just assume that I was born here because I don't have, um, I don't know, I, I guess an accent. I didn't know I was supposed to, but yeah, I was born in Iran, in the okay. Kurdish city of Salmos. Okay. Yeah. I've never been, my cousin, um, my older cousin, she's a, she was a journalist for um, uh, National Geographic, uh, and she she was there in, in the eighties writing. She wrote some big travelogue about Tehran and all this stuff. So it's yeah. interesting because a lot not a lot of Americans have been there. You know, it's not a place that's easy to get to. So it's, I've heard it's like Los Angeles, and it's just sort of spread out over large. You know, it's it's big, vast. Um, and stuff like that. So, you know, be fun it actually go. is very much like Los Angeles because one area is just like it's the rich, right? Yeah. And then as soon as you like take a left or the, like the wrong turn, it's just like homelessness and sadness. Yeah. And poverty. And it hurts because you're like, wow, can't we just help them? I know I'm like a, I'm a dreamer, but whatever. No, you're, you know, it, you're, you're optimistic and you're a believer in the human spirit. And that's what we need more of, you know, otherwise you just give up and what's the point. And, you know, we're here, we might as well make the world a better place, I say. So I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Samira Gaderi, thanks so much for joining today. This was uh, joining so me much. today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for having me. Hopefully we'll speak soon again. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, your dog has been remarkably silent now for the whole second. <laughs> so give him a dog it's a treat. It's time for good. him. <laughs> I named him Azad, actually. It means freedom in Kurdish. Okay. So he's, um, he knows what's up. He just wanted to give me some pointers earlier. <laughs> But he's he's passed out right now. Okay, good. I think he's he's happy with the with the job he did. So um good on him. <laughs> okay, right. thank you so much. It was really great. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure. Of course. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail.
SW.